we watched it, Christy and I watched it for, for several years, and then a, and a certain character died, and after that character died, I went, eh, I'm working with this, so we stopped watching. But, but there's a movie out right, right now, it came out a couple weeks ago, so it's back in it's sort of the, the uh, I don't know, the cultural consciousness, maybe. Um, obviously, we don't have a ton of fans in here. We've got three of y'all raised your hands, so, so maybe you don't care about that. Good for you, that's okay. Uh, I think, though, when, when people watched it at the time, and probably this is true of many series, most of the drama and probably the appeal of the show um, touched on two issues, and randomly, there are the two issues that we're dealing with in this passage today, and that is children and servants. Okay? And so a whole lot of that show was about the interesting relationships and um, the ways that those two groups of people interact with the children of this family, the Crawleys in, um, or is it the Crawleys, right? That's maybe the number of kids. You don't watch it anyway. You don't. <laughs> uh, uh, and then, and then these, uh, the, the, the downstairs servants, right? These servants who live there in the home um, and, and, and are there with the family at all times and, and share very intimately in, in the life of that family. Um, that's what we're talking about in this passage. Children and, and servants, bond servants, slaves. Um, those may seem like an odd pair, right? It may seem weird to talk about servants and children in the same um, message. And honestly, it might be better off for us to separate these two into two different messages. But we're going to hear them together, and this is the reason why. Because basically what Paul is, this sort of broader thing that he's been talking about in this section, is household ethics. Okay? Um, we talked a few weeks ago about how the message of Ephesians is this grand um, sort of scope narrative, right? There's this huge, big, cosmic picture going on with what Paul is saying uh, the gospel has done and, and, and what Christ has done in the world and how it's applied on these things. It's a huge picture, right? Well, this is part of the deal is that Paul is saying, hey man, this really big picture, this huge, cosmic picture applies to your life in very intimate ways, right? It's not so big that we just sort of look at it and go, oh man, it's this big grand mystery that I can't apply anywhere. No, that big grand mystery of the gospel uh, applies to the most intimate areas of your life. It applies to your your, uh, marriage. It applies to your children. It applies to those people who are your servants or will probably apply that in more of an employee's kind of way. People who you live life with on a daily basis. Okay? And so that's what we're going to kind of look into tonight. But remember, as we address this, we're still looking back to that same verse as sort of a, uh, a verse that frames the whole discussion in chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul says that we are supposed to submit to one another. Okay? And so as part of our living as spirit-filled people, we are all submitting to one another. There's a, there's a certain aspect of our lives where it's, yes, there are authority structures. We've already talked about that with husbands and wives. We're going to talk about that with parents and slaves. There are authority structures, and yet, in a way, we are all serving each other, right? We are all submitting our lives to each other because Christ is, has submitted his life um, for us. So, again, that's a pretty radical idea, especially for the context, both in a Jewish culture and in a Roman culture. The idea that these kind of people, children, Slaves, um, that their masters would submit to them in a way is a radical idea. The idea that husbands would submit in some ways to their wives is a radical idea. Okay? So um, it is showing how this cosmic gospel of Jesus Christ has changed everything. It's changed every single relationship in your life. And so that's what we get into. So there at the beginning, it says, Children, verse 1, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment of the promise, 
that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Okay? So on, on, on a surface level, that's pretty straightforward, right? Paul is looking back to the Ten Commandments. He's looking to the Fifth Commandment uh, in particular, to be specific. Uh, and it says to for children to honor their parents. Okay, so again, we recognize that there is a normal relationship of hierarchy and authority that God has established in creation. Okay, children are supposed to honor and respect um, and submit to their parents. Um, and I'll tell you what, if you think that's not an issue anymore, uh, first off, have kids. But if you think it's not a bigger issue in the culture. Like, that idea is not um, radical or countercultural, right? You go, yeah, of course, kids just submit to their parents. Man, listen to Al Mulder's uh, briefing for a couple of weeks in a row, right? And you will hear multiple articles about how he talks about different places in the culture where there's some element of the culture that is saying, hey, uh, parents, you don't have any rights over your kids. You can't tell them what to do. They should be able to whatever, right? You know, um, have children, uh, have abortions, have sex change, have anything without your consent because you don't, you, you don't control your children, you don't boss your children, you have authority over them. They're your autonomous beings, they can do whatever they want to, right? And it doesn't take long before you realize that even though at one level this seems normal, children are under the authority of their parents, at another level, there's a world that says, no, we don't buy that, we don't believe as all mankind should submit to our Heavenly Father, each of us should also submit to and honor our earthly parents. Okay? And so Paul gives us two justifications for that. First off, he says, for this is right. Okay? Pretty straightforward again there. It's a way of living life that lines up with God's character and God's command. It is right for kids, for children, to honor their parents. Just because of God's word. Um, Paul's probably primarily talking about um, living kids, right? Kids who are still a household, right? You guys and, and you, and right? People who are still living in the home. That's primarily who he's talking about. But he's not just talking to those people. He's talking about the fact that all children should honor and respect their parents. And, you know, honestly, as, as a parent, and you're, if you're a parent, you're aware of this, we are very aware of the ways that our children disrespect us. Okay, when our children do something to disrespect us, we notice it very quickly. But we are often less aware um, of the ways that maybe we are disrespecting our parents, right? Ways that we are living um, that dishonor um, uh, or disobey uh, our, our parents. That especially becomes the case the more and more independence we get, right? The further and further our family uh, separates from the authority of our of our. Uh, earthly mothers and fathers, we, we find ways of, of respecting them less and less oftentimes, right? That becomes harder as age sets in, as infirmity sets in, as obstinance sets in, right? And not just obstinance on the part of your older parents, but on obstinance on your part, right? You get set in your ways, and you decide that you're not going to um, do whatever it is that, that your family wants you to. And yeah, there's still this command, right? This command says we are to submit to one another, and that specifically includes honoring our, our parents, honoring um, our mother and father. So Paul says that it's right. It's just right. It's the right way to live our lives according to the Word of God. But there's a second thing. It's also beneficial for us to live that way. So he says that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Right? You want to have a good life. You want to live long in the land. 
then there is, there is, um, it's necessary for a society to have this deal where we're honoring our parents, we're respecting our parents, okay? And again, notice what I said there. That isn't just an individual kind of command. It's not just saying that you, as a single individual, if you will follow your parents and honor them, that you will have a good life and live long and later, right? It's bigger than that. Because obviously to live, uh, to have this good life and to live long in the land, it requires this bigger thing. I think what Paul is at least, and the Old Testament is getting at, is these are societal, societal values, okay? A society doesn't work right when its citizens dishonor their parents, okay? When they live in, in opposition to their parents or in conflict with their parents on a regular basis, society begins to break down, okay? Obedience and reverence of children to their parents is a necessary building block of society. And without it, things get goofy really quick. And so when you look at historians who have done um, studies of the collapse of different empires, right, whether it's the Romans, the Babylonians, or the, you know, the British Empire, or whatever, there are always these certain things that pop up, these certain similar characteristics, okay? And one of them is always the breakdown of the family. That can be marked by different issues, right? So on one, on the parent side, it can be about divorce or adultery or, or things like that that become common factors in society. But on the other side, there is always this. You always see this in every class of the society. Number one, you see a youth rebellion against parents um, or the parents abandoning their kids so that the rebellion just, they don't even have to rebel, right? Because they're just not involved in their lives. And you see a general disrespect in the culture for the role in the work of parenting. Right? That somehow parenting is beneath people. It's not a good thing. Kind of those things I just talked about, right? The idea that your children should be ruled by you, you have the authority over them. That's not the way a a world should work. And so keep your eyes out for those kind of things, right? Anytime a politician or a philosopher or a social mover and shaker starts talking about undermining the role of parents in the lives of their children, you know something's going on. What's going on is those politicians, philosophers, or influencers, they want influence in your child's life, right? They want to be the new person who's speaking authoritatively into their lives, okay? So, you know, you find this picture in all kinds of things where, you know, even, even things like, you know, communist Russia, where there's this idea that, you know what, parents are responsible for the raising of children, the state is responsible for the raising of children. Well, obviously, that's so that they can be indoctrinated into a certain thought and a certain a worldview. Uh, and yet, the scriptures continually point against that, right? Those people are trying to usurp the God-given influence and authority that you have in your child's life. But we have to fight back against that, right? We have to lean into the scriptures and what they say and say, no, it is my job, my call, and my responsibility to raise my children and teach them uh, and bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, right? Because here's the deal. Um, the home and the family are supposed to be the primary incubators of faith and godliness in the life of an individual. Okay? Let me say that again. The family is the primary incubator of faith and holiness in the life of an individual. Okay? The church is important, in fact, necessary, in fact, irreplaceable, okay? but it is not the first place. Okay? The first place 
that anybody should hear about the gospel and about faith and about um, growing holiness and in God's word is in the home. Um, and that's why Paul admonishes in this next section, verse 4, he says, fathers, right? So he speaks specifically to these fathers. He doesn't just say, hey, fathers, you uh, should get to church, you know, so that somebody else can tell them about Jesus. That's not what he says. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay? Um, dads, it's saying, don't be an adversary of your child, right? Don't provoke them to anger. Um, we mess that up sometimes. Man, I mess that up daily. I think I messed it up last time. Okay, I, I mess it up all the time, right? There are lots of times where we try to balance this thing where we're like, man, I'm supposed to discipline my children, right? They have to be held accountable to things. Um, and yet at the same time, I end up not just disciplining, but I end up being their enemy, their adversary in some way. That's not what we're called to do. We're not called to provoke our kids in that way. Um, I, I shared this, I think, before. Um, and I talk, it's a study that I read years ago when I was in seminary. Okay? It was talking about um, raising children and how to raise children that are the most balanced. Okay? Um, and, and it put this little quadrant kind of thing. It said, very simply, you can be loving and gracious to your child or disinterested in your child. And then on the other quadrant, it was you can have boundaries or you can have no boundaries. You let them do whatever they want to. Right? That's just the four quadrants, right? So you can imagine you have four combinations that fit. Okay, so it makes sense probably immediately that not caring about your kid and not having any boundaries is the worst thing. Okay, that's the bad. Kids don't turn out good that way. Okay? Um, and then it, it would probably not surprise many of you that the best way to do things was to have both a loving and gracious attitude towards your kids, but to also give them boundaries. Okay? So that's probably not a surprise. The, the interesting part, for me anyway, comes in at the next section. And so which of those other two are better? Is it better to be gracious with few boundaries, or is it better to be stern? Uh, sorry, is it better to be gracious and have few boundaries, or is it better to have lots of boundaries but kind of be a little bit stern and stoic maybe in your relationship? Which one? And here's the interesting thing. I bet you if we surveyed the group, we would get about a 50-50 split. Because it probably depends a lot on how you were raised and how you understand the, the act of parenting and stuff like that. But this is what the study found. It said you're actually, children tend to be better off in a gracious family with fewer boundaries. Okay? Now, again, there's a part of me that immediately goes, huh, no, that's not right. That can't be the case, right? We need to be stern and those kids can get over it, okay? But that's not what they, the study found. The study found, you know what, having that loving, gracious relationship with your child is actually what is more, um, it, it ends up, kids end up being more balanced um, in those kind of relationships than they would the other. Okay? Which is just interesting. Now again, that's not the goal. The goal is to be both right boundaries, gracious and loving to your kids. And that's exactly actually what we see in this passage. Like what is the saying? It says, number one, do not provoke your kids to anger. Right? Don't be your kid's enemy. Don't be just, just this, this stern rule maker in your house. Okay? That's, you're not just trying to like um, scare or put, make your kids fear you or anything like that. But at the same time, you have to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Right? There have to be over these things. There needs to be love and grace. There needs to be boundaries and discipline in these things. Okay? And so uh, the reality is this. Man, we do violence to our kids when we try to discipline them without them knowing 
the love of Christ in your life. Okay? Um, and maybe, again, there's a lot of there's a lot of guilt that goes along with that. Like, there's many nights where I've yelled at my kids for the umpteenth time about something, and then I just walk away going, man, I didn't get this whole thing. Uh, it's easy to do that. It follows admonishments, right? It's not, it's, again, it's not about guilt. It's about saying, let, let's, let's push into this. Um, loving our kids graciously, recognizing the implications of the gospel, even of our relationship with our kids. But then at the same time, teaching them, being the, the primary disciples of our kids uh, in a home. Uh, moms, you have a critical role in Right? Okay. So he specifically says, "Fathers do this." Um, you have a critical role in this. Okay. So you're not left out of that equation. We're not saying that. Um, we're not saying that. Oh, cool. Dads are supposed to do this, and moms are just going to do something else. Right? Obviously, moms and dads share in this in this uh, endeavor. If you're a single parent or something, then, then obviously you're having to carry some of the weight um, that, that maybe you wouldn't ordinarily have. But he specifically talks to dads because, again, we're talking about these different structures, right? In a family where a man has been called to headship in that family, he has a unique spiritual responsibility for his kids. Um, again, that's hard to do. I mean, I'm a professional Christian. I mess up at it all the time, right? Um, I do Christianity for a uh, and, and But it, it's hard to make it work, right? It's hard to get those balances together. Yet at the same time, we want to be loving and gracious and intentional with our kids. So I'm still trying to find ways to do that. Like I'm trying to find ways that I can say, man, I want to get with my kids and, and intentionally pour into them. Um, intentionally talk about God's word with them. Some of that just happens naturally, right? It should happen This is we go throughout life. They're seeing us um, follow Jesus Christ. Um, we're, we're, we're talking about these things as we go, uh, as the scriptures say. Um, but again, also trying to make intentional times of Forty and spiritually. Uh, again, lots of grace is needed. Okay, and so so that's what Paul first off calls us to do. He says, "Hey, remember, um, children, you have a responsibility to obey your parents." Okay, but at the same time, parents, you have a, a responsibility in a sense to submit to your children because you are giving your lives to them. You are pouring into them and living your life in a way um, that sacrifices and gives for them. So then Paul basically so he said, okay, cool, so that's that main relationship with kids, but then there's these other people in your house, or at least there probably would have been in first century um, Greco-Roman context. There's these other people living in your house, and they're not your kids, and they're not your parents, and they're not your relatives. They are these bond servants. They're these servants that you have. And so verse 5, he says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and tremble. So as we've said, um, slaves often... Uh, bond servants often had super close relationships with members of the family, right? They actually sit kind of in an in-between space between an employee and a child, right? That that person in again, it's kind of like in the in Down Abbey, which is a which is a ruined illustration. None of you watch it, right? But there's this character named Mary Crawley, and she has a very close relationship with Carson's butler, and so much so that really she's closer to Carson than she is to her father. Right. He is more of a father to her than even her actual father. Um, just because he's, he lives in her house, they're, they're in such a close relationship with each other, right? Um, and so, again, that can be the case for these people, right? That they're not exactly family, but then they're not just employees either. They are these, these, these live-in people that we're, we're very connected to. 
Uh, it's probably it's probably necessary that we kind of explain a little bit of the context of slavery. It's complicated. Um, the Bible stance on slavery is not simplistic. Um, but the problem is that most of us, when we think about slavery, we immediately think about chattel slavery in the American South, right? And that's not what slavery in general um, looked like in the Greco-Roman world. It could look that way, right? If you were a prisoner of war that was sent to the mines, uh, yeah, it probably looked like that. You worked yourself to death and, and then you died. But that's not primarily the context we're talking about. We're talking about these household bond servants, okay? And so it was very different than, than what slavery has looked at in an in a 1800s American context, right? It wasn't race-based necessarily, okay? People from any race could end up being slave. Um, it wasn't lifelong necessarily. You could buy yourself out of slavery. You could work yourself out of slavery. You could be given um, uh, freedom from slavery, right? There was upward mobility even within slavery, right? You could own your own home. Um, you could have a family of your own. You could have an income. You, as a slave, could own other slaves. Okay? And so there was a very different kind of context for it. Um, and again, there's no doubt that there are aspects of slavery that still stand against human dignity in certain ways. Um, so the New Testament, if you kind of bring all the stuff together in the New Testament, in general, it's pointing at a trajectory against slavery, right? To end slavery. That's the trajectory of, of the New Testament. And yet, there's, it's not just that easy either, right? We are slaves to Christ. Um, the Bible uses that language about us, right? Uh, and it doesn't apologize for that language. And so similar to, to wives submitting to their husbands, it's easier to accept Jesus as our, as our master than it is to look at somebody in the world and accept it, right? Um, it's easy to look to Jesus and say, yeah, Jesus would be a great master. I would have no problem being a servant, slave, bond servant of Jesus. But I don't know about these other people. Like, I wouldn't want to be in one of those relationships, okay? Um, and so, so again, having all this, it's a huge topic, and there's lots to, to be said about it, right? But, but all that to say, at least in this section, Paul's not a social revolutionary, right? He's not calling... He doesn't address the larger issue of slavery as an institution. Um, Paul is showing us how to live godly lives when circumstances are not ideal. Okay? And so the reality was that slavery was a thing. And it was going to be a thing for a long time. And so he's trying to say, this is how you live if you happen to be a slave. Um, we're kind of spoiled by the fact that we, as in, in kind of Western modern society, um, we get, we sort of base everything off these ideas of freedom and equity and stuff like that. And it's not how most of the world works. It's not how most of the world right now works. It certainly wasn't the way most of the world worked in Jesus' uh, time in, in, in the New Testament era, right? And so again, Paul's looking to right now. He's saying, if you were a slave, and you're living in, in as a bond servant in somebody's house, how should you then live? How can you live in a place that's not ideal? And so I think the case is, is this. Again, we might look at it and go, well, this has nothing to say to us because we're not slaves. Uh, we don't have any, I don't, we don't own any slaves. This is an issue from a, a bygone era. And yet I think there's a lot of overlap, or there certainly can be a lot of over, overlap, between slavery, bond servants, and employees and employers. Okay? So we can probably draw some similar principles. Uh, we have a responsibility as employees to work in a certain way because of Christ. We live a different way and work a different way because we have Jesus Christ in our lives. So look what he says. He says, how do we work? We work with a sincere heart, as you would to Christ, 
not by way of eye service as people pleaser, people pleasers, but as bond servants, slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. Okay? So again, there's no guarantee that you would have a kind master. There's no guarantee that you would have a nice, easy, equitable relationship to serve. Um, but that's exactly what Paul's getting at. He's saying that's not the primary factor. The same way we talk about sometimes as a, as a wife, you may have a husband who is not the ideal. You're never going to have a husband. So that's that's clear about that. Um, uh, it's always going to be the case that he's not the ideal. Um, and it may make it harder to respect it, harder to submit, uh, and yet there is a necessary element there, right? There is a command there. Um, the same thing is true of these servants. You may have a boss or a slave master who is a bad guy, um, and yet there is a responsibility to submit, not because he's awesome, but because Christ is awesome, because Christ uh, is who he has, because of the worthiness of Jesus you do these things, okay? Um, Jesus is the worthy master not necessarily the person who we are working with. Okay? And so we see a couple of things, a couple of principles here that, that, that just quickly we recognize. Again, to say that again, we work as if we are working for Christ himself in our context. Whatever it is, whether you are an employee or you're in management or it doesn't matter, you work as if you are working for Christ. So in verse 6 it says, you are bondservants of Christ, not just a earthly ministry. Doing the will of God from your heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord. Right? He repeats it three times. Basically, says you are not working for that guy. You are working for Jesus. You are not working for that manager. You are working for Jesus. Okay. At the end of the day, we work because of who Christ is, not because of who our masters are. And if your earthly boss is harsh or unpleasant or greedy, um, that makes it hard. But here's the deal: your true boss is none of those. Jesus is none of those things. And in the midst of a difficult world environment, that hard, that, that truth is hard to live out, but it's also life-altering, right? When we recognize that, that how we function in our workplace is not a function of the people we work with, but a function of who Jesus Christ is in our life, I mean, that should change everything. We should be different people because of that. Act differently. Um, respond to our work and the things that go on there in a different way. Because Christ is different. Or he's making us different. Okay. Um, two, not only do we work for Christ, but something we notice in this, this passage, we're not suffers. Okay? We are not sympathetes. Alright? That's not the way we live in the work environment. We don't do stuff just for eye service, right? We don't just do stuff to be a people pleaser. We don't do stuff where we just get in good with the boss so that we can make him think that he like we like him and he's gonna give us uh, a raise or, or a promotion or whatever like that. That's not how we, we uh, act. Uh, what we do is we live out of a, a true heart that says, I'm doing this because of who Jesus Christ is. Okay? Um, I'm not just doing this to get ahead. I'm not faking it. Um, I'm not being a up. I'm doing this because Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Um, and I'm going to live in a different way. Um, we're not just trying to give the impression that we're a good worker. Okay? We're trying to actually be good hearted. And so the deal is, is, maybe on one level you go, yeah, but actually, man, that can be very unfair. Okay? Um, 
Okay, because I can work my guts out, right? I can work my heart um, to the fullest extent I can. Um, and man, if my boss is a jerk, then then I don't get reward for that, right? The reward that is rightly mine that should come from my labor, what is just there, it doesn't come to me. Um, I got a boss who keeps on snubbing me, right? Uh, I've been working hard and I just never get anywhere in the situation. Maybe he under patient, maybe he takes advantage of you in terms of uh, um, your work ethic and your, your willingness to work um, uh, and, and fill in gaps and stuff like that. I don't know, it could be anything. But again, the reminder is here. And so he says, there is a reward that is just. But notice that the person who gives you the reward is not your boss. That that just reward that is coming for your labor comes from your ultimate boss. It comes from Jesus Christ himself. So in verse 8 he says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Okay? Whether he's a bondservant or free. Okay? So here's the deal. This is what we tell ourselves. We go, man, if I do the right thing, if I work hard and do what I'm supposed to, management, whoever, they're going to notice and I'm going to get um, the things that are rightly um, mine. Okay? And oftentimes that is true. Right? In a just work environment, they're going to notice your hard work and, and you're going to be rewarded for that. But it's not ultimately true. It doesn't always happen. There are times in your life where you're going to do your best and work your hardest and you're still going to get set up. That's going to happen. But what you have to recognize in this situation is you cannot, ultimately, you will get what is deserved. You will get what is right. You will receive back from the Lord what is just. Because at the end of the day, God is not. God sees your effort. God sees your work. God sees your diligence. He sees your honesty. He sees whatever. And he is going to reward you for those things. Um, part of this is our impatience. We want to be rewarded now for those things. And that's normal and natural on a certain level, right? But we have to recognize that's not always the case. But our reward for those things is coming. And so I think those ten principles kind of pass that they work both ways. It's not just for servants um, and slaves. It also works for uh, employees and employers, okay? And that, that kind of brings us to our closing little section, the last line here, because it doesn't work just for employees, it's also for the bosses, it's also for the masters uh, of the bond service. So verse 9, masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with Okay? So again, some of us will get to a position in our lives where we have a certain level of authority. Maybe we've got people who are under us, maybe we're a boss, maybe we're an owner, maybe we're a manager, and we have people who are under us. And you can do that in different ways. You can sort of say, cool, I'm the boss, I have the authority now, I'm going to make everybody's life, they're going to fear me, and I'm going to make them do what I want them to do, and, and they're going to respect me or else, kind of attitude. And you can threaten, and you can scare, and you can make ultimatums and stuff like that. Uh, except Paul says, don't do that. Stop threatening. Remember this, that you have a master who is not treating you that way. Um, and that master is actually the same master that they have. You both share the same master that is Jesus Christ. And how has he treated you? He's treated you with love and grace and sacrificial service. Um, he has given his life for your good. So you know what you do? Going back to that same verse of 5.4, you submit to one another. 
even though you're the boss, and even though you were the leader in that context, you still wouldn't get that um, to your workers in a certain way. I had a, I had a friend who was a uh, business owner at a mother church, and, and I had you know personal conversations with him, and he's talking about, man, there were lots of lean times in his business. He's got about a dozen employees or so, and there were times where he had to go, you know what, I had to I have to take a hit from my salary to where I'm not making any money just to keep my guys um, in their jobs, right? He had to do that. He could look at it and say, I'm the boss. I deserve all this stuff. You guys are laid off so that I can continue to have a standard of life that I'm accustomed to. But instead, what do you do? He said, no, I'm going to sacrificially serve these guys. I'm going to take these, okay? Uh, I'm going to be the one who doesn't get paid so that you guys can continue to have a job and work in those ways, right? And God has honored that. I'm not saying he, it always will. There could be situations where the whole thing collapses and the business ends and whatever. And yet this 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 guy that, that goes to another church, he said, but this is what the gospel requires of us, right? This is how we're supposed to live our lives. And so I'm going to do my best um, to honor that and to care and sacrifice for these men uh, and women who are undermined. Okay? That would be crazy in the ancient world. To say that a master has a responsibility to serve, submit, and sacrifice for his slaves would have been crazy, right? And yet that's exactly what we see in the gospel. It's that the Lord of all creation, Jesus Christ, has submitted his own life, sacrificed of himself for his slaves, for his servants, for the people who he is winning back to himself. For us, for his church. Okay? So we see that picture of the gospel. So Paul is again saying this cosmic gospel that has changed everything should change every relationship in your life. Your marriages, your parenting, and even your relationships. Amen? Okay, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And, you know, again, I don't know, probably all of us are, are, are working on these issues in various levels, right? We are both employees and employers. We have people under us, and we have people who are over us. We are parents, we are children. We have all these different kind of relationships. How do all these things, what are the places that God is speaking to you? I don't know. But let's just go to the Lord in prayer right now and ask Him to open our hearts to those things, to begin to reveal to us the ways that we are falling short. Um, and the ways that he's calling us to live in the life of that gospel. Let's do that. Father God, that you would send your Son Jesus Christ into the world, that you would uh, step down out of the glories of heaven, that you would take on uh, flesh, not to say flesh, but to have a servant, not to say servant, but a servant, to say to die, not to say death, but death on the cross. God, that you would step down for us, that you would submit your life for your people. It's an incredible thought. That the God of the whole universe would sacrifice and submit his own for the good of his people. God is incredible. Um, any tiny bit of respect or authority, anything we are owed or, 
do we have to send those things back to the council? Why do we sacrificial service that you have uh, exhibited and exemplified God in the sacrificial service that you can call us as your children. Help us see the ways that we fall short. Help us to love our parents rightly. Help us to love our kids rightly. Help us to love our employees rightly. Help us to love those in authority over us in the workplace rightly. Help us to serve and minister and sacrifice and submit in right ways. God, in all these things, let